It's a wonderful blessing to be at Maranatha. Uh, it's a place that uh, I'm glad to be back. I, I had a son and some daughters that attended here, and uh, my younger sister, sister years ago actually was on the faculty here. And uh, believe it or not, we have several friends here. Good to see them. And uh, we have a Ukrainian family with us. We'll ask the Buikos to stand. This is Eugene, his wife, Sophia, and then Ivanka, Salamia, and Angelika. And you'll hear from them tomorrow. But they're from Kiev. They're right in the middle of uh, all that is going on there. You'll be, you'll be amazed to hear what they've lived through. And as Brother Eugene says, it's just by the grace of God that he's here alive with us today. And he's also been involved in, in, uh, in a huge way in the distribution of war relief that we've been doing. And uh, I'm not going to mention that much about that in our message, but uh, we invite you to stop by our display table there. We have a lot of literature there. And uh, we also have a website, baptistinternational.org, and you can log on there. And we probably have maybe 70 different videos from our church planters uh, talking about and showing you uh, scenes of the distribution of, of all this aid. And God has really blessed that. Uh, through that, many, many people are being saved. The testimony of, of Baptist churches in Ukraine has just skyrocketed. And uh, God is using this situation to bring many to Christ. When the bombs are dropping, uh, people are ready to hear from heaven. And God is using this event in an amazing way to, to bring souls to him. And so this morning, I asked the question, why did Russia invade Ukraine? Uh, that's, a, that's a hard question. Um, there's, there's people that would say, well, that's, it's, you can't explain that. It's unfathomable. It's so bizarre. It's so evil. It's, it's so beyond the pale. And I don't have a quarrel with people who say, don't even try to explain it. There's, we just can't know the answer. Uh, I, I was right in Moscow before all this happened. And I was in, we've got church planners in, in, in the Moscow area and in, and in the St. Petersburg area. And everyone I talked to, just people on the street and on their news, every person said there will be no war. And that's what we thought here. That's what the Ukrainians thought. And then... Uh, then it happened. Why? And our, our, even though it's, it's very, very logical to think you can't explain it completely, you know, we have a desire to know. And our mind asks, and the Bible does say, the curse causeless shall not come. And so in this message, I want to give you reasons why Russia invaded Ukraine. Or maybe I should say reason. There's some reasons, but behind it all, there is one reason. And we want to look at that this morning. And first of all, I want to paint a picture for you of what it's like to live under a communist authoritarian regime. And the people in Ukraine know what it's like. That's why they're fighting so hard. That's why they'd rather die than go back under that kind of a system. And first of all, I go back to when uh, my father was a young man. Uh, he got out of the Soviet Union. He was born in western Ukraine. And he got out of the Soviet Union and along with four million other people from that part of the world ended up in South America. Many ended up in, in America, but four million ended up in South America. And there in Argentina, when he land, where he landed there, uh, Argentina is a country where there are many poor and a few wealthy. And so the idea, the propaganda about how wonderful communism is sounds great to those people. 
especially university students, that my father was connected with. And it sounded great to them, you know, you, yeah, you don't have any freedom, but look, your job is guaranteed. Everybody gets the same pay. Everything's provided, free health insurance, free education, et cetera, et cetera. And to a nation like that, to young people in university in Argentina, that sounded wonderful. And there was a couple brothers that heard all that, and they bought into it. They knew that if they would defect, renounce their citizenship in Argentina, and move to, to uh, Russia that they would have no freedom. They wouldn't be able to criticize, but they thought it was a pretty good trade, though, for what they get in return. And uh, because of not knowing for sure how things would go, they, they agreed that the unmarried brother would go first. The brother with the family would stay behind, and after a few months, after the unmarried brother lived in the Soviet Union, after he got a good idea of what it was like, he would send back a message to his brother whether it was good to come or not, if it was like, like they thought. Of course, he couldn't write anything critical, but they agreed on a code. And by the way, in the United States during those years, there are almost 2,000 Americans who renounced their American citizenship and went to the Soviet Union. Almost 2,000. And uh, most of them were never heard from again. But uh, the code these brothers decided on was that the brother would, after a few months, would write a letter... And in the letter, it would talk about how wonderful it is. But the picture inside was the code. The picture inside was the true indicator of what it was really like. And if he was standing in the picture, and his brother received that picture along with this letter, that meant that things are as good as we thought. Come with your family. If he's sitting down in the picture, it means stay in Argentina. It's not good here. When he got the, pic the letter, of course, the letter talked about how wonderful it was. But in the picture, he wasn't standing, he wasn't sitting, he was laying down. <laughs> now, the laws that they had there, the way they, they acted towards Christians was very difficult. Our, we have a, a book that's uh, one of the key pastors we've worked with in Russia is Peter Romanchik. He was the vice president of that large group of unregistered Baptist churches, and he was imprisoned in... Uh, in the gulag for 18 years. Not many people survived 18 years. He was arrested five different times, brought to trial. The first time he was arrested, he was uh, arrested with four other men from the church, and they were charged with a law that was adopted by Stalin in the 60s called the, Paris, the Parasite Law. And, that's, and they used that law to prosecute and sentence a lot of preachers to prison in the Soviet Union. And basically, it was that you're a parasite because you don't have a job. If you're preaching the Word of God, you're a minister, you don't have a job. And therefore, you are a parasite. And so, uh, they were charged. All five men were charged with parasitism. And uh, the interesting thing was that when they were arrested, of those five, one was retired, the other four were arrested at work. So you think they'd get off? Not a chance. It's the Soviet Union. It's that authoritarian system where there is no justice. All of them were convicted and sent to Siberia. And uh, that kind of uh, cruelty, that kind of injustice was not just leveled against the believers, but all citizens suffered. It was awful to live under that. Brother Peter tells of a story of his uncle, who uh, in those days, in, in, in that regime, had a chance to go to Canada to be a lumberjack for a year and a half. And he took that opportunity, he went, and, and he did lumberjacking for a year and a half, then of course he had to return to the Soviet Union. 
And some time went by, and one day, in their factory cafeteria where he worked, uh, somebody asked him, hey, Yvonne, what was it like there? What was it like there in, in Canada when you were cutting down trees? Uh, what, what was the, it was right at lunch, and their, their work cafeteria wasn't, wasn't really, nobody liked it, you know. And uh, they asked him, what, what did they feed you? How was the food there in Canada? What was it like? And he said, you won't believe it. There in the middle of the forest, they would set out these tables. They had three kinds of meat. They had vegetables. They had fruit. They had bananas. All kinds of bread. And we ate and we ate and we ate. That night, there's a knock on his door. It's the KGB. And they said, uh, we've come here to arrest you. And uh, he was charged with anti-Soviet slander. They it, that was a law that they used almost at will. It was like a rubber term. They could prosecute just about anybody anytime they wanted to. And in his case, they said, you've slandered the Soviet Union. How dare you say that the food is better in Canada? You know that in Mother Russia, there is no place like this. This is the food is the best. Everything's the best. And so you're a traitor. You've slandered the Soviet Union. And that was a serious crime. And even, they've always had a public defender system like we have. And uh, so he had a public defender, a lawyer, and he met with them, and he said to them, what in the world? What did you say that for? You're nuts. Why would you say it? Don't you know how dangerous that is? This anti-Soviet slander is punishable by death. Why did you say that? He said, I don't know. Just, just said it. He said, look, they are going to go for the death sentence. I've been here. We've, I've seen it. And you have only, you have only one chance. And that's write a profuse apology. Tom, you went out of your mind that you know that the food in Canada is not better than the food in Russia. That you just lied. And, and, and that you're so sorry, just write as profuse of apology as you can. So he did. And uh, the lawyer presented it to the judge. And they've changed the charges from death, uh, for punishment by death to 15 years. And he served all 15 years. And uh, he was released, and sometime later, years later, uh, Stalin's period was over, and uh, people began to realize how awful it was, and they actually began to compensate people that they called victims of Stalin's terror. And some people were getting cars, monetary awards, because they were trying, they called it, they were going to rehabilitate the people who suffered unjustly under that, under, under Stalin. So he read this in the newspaper and he thought, hey, I was a victim of Stalin's terror. You know, maybe I could, maybe I'll get a car or some kind of monetary settlement. So he wrote a letter to the prosecutor who, who uh, dealt with his case. And asked him, you know, I heard that some victims of Stalin's terror are getting cars, they're getting monetary awards, and I, I suffered too. And uh, am I entitled to anything? He got a letter back, said, no, you should have been put to death. So uh, he decided to stop writing letters. <laughs> and uh, so, friends, the people in Ukraine know what they'd be in for if they lost their freedom and were under that system again. And it's not like Stalin now in Russia, but it's heading that way, and they know it. So reason number one, why did Russia invade Ukraine? The first reason I gave is there's a human factor. There's a human reason. Uh, the lust of the flesh, greed. Putin 
not satisfied with 11 time zones. He, he wants more. And uh, I, uh, you have to admire uh, President Zelensky. I know we don't want to whitewash him. We know that, that Ukrainian politics are just full of corruption. In fact, Putin, there's one thing I agree with Putin that when he said that, that he felt sorry for the Ukrainian people because every time they had an election, they voted in a new band of thieves. And uh, their, their system has a, a lot of problems. Like Putin would rather, he thought, it's better have one thief all the time, you know, not, not change these. You know. So, so uh, uh, what I, I like what, what Zelensky said when, at a time when France and Germany were pressuring him to compromise and give up some of Ukraine uh, to, to Putin. And he said this, he said, look, he says, if you want Putin to have more land, give him part of France and give him part of Germany. We're not giving any part of Ukraine up. <laughs> and, uh, but that, that's behind this. I believe that's a human factor, greed to want more. The, the book of Solomon says that the eye is not filled, satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. And it's, it's the lust of the flesh. And so what is there in Ukraine that Putin would want? Well, here's, here's some facts about Ukraine. Uh, it's the first in Europe in proven recoverable reserves of uranium. Second place in Europe in terms of titanium ore. Second place in the world in terms of magnesium ore. Second in the world in reserves of uh, iron ore. Second place in Europe in mercury. Third place in shale gas reserves. Fourth in the world in, ter in the value of its natural resources. And uh, what about agriculture? It's first in Europe in terms of arable land area, third place in the world in black soil. Ukraine has 25% of the world's black soil. First place in the world in exports of sunflower and sunflower oil. Second place in barley. Third place in corn. Fourth place in potatoes. Fifth place in rye. And then the list goes on and on. In fact, Ukraine, with 40 million people, has such a vast, rich agricultural potential that their agriculture could feed 600 million people. And uh, that, that is truly, truly amazing. It's, that's why it's been always called the, the breadbasket of Europe. And there's also industry. It's the first in Europe in ammonia, second in Europe in natural gas pipeline systems, third in Europe in the terms of installed nuclear power, uh, third place in the world in rail networks, third largest iron exporter, fourth largest in terms of turbines for uh, nuclear power, and, and, and the list goes on and on. So there's, there's a human factor of greed wanting to obtain that. And uh, let's go to a second factor. We mentioned the, this human factor. Uh, the second factor is uh, the geopolitical factor. Um, there is a organization that uh, is kind of like a think tank. It's called the Stratfor Institute. And uh, they, they have conferences and they produce uh, papers and they have meetings all around the, the terms, all around the theme of uh, geopolitical issues around the world. And uh, I didn't save the article, but when all this started to happen, I remembered very clearly an article I read about 15 years ago from the Stratfor Institute. And this was after uh, the Soviet Union disintegrated and Ukraine was independent. And uh, the writer of this article posed this question. 
now that Ukraine was free and now that the Soviet Union had been disintegrated and they're, they're becoming democratic and they've moved from a closed uh, communist econ economy to an open market, he, he brought up this question. What would it take? What would be the circumstances whereby Putin would decide to go back to a closed economy? What would it take for him to, to say it's not working and we're going to revert back to that closed system we had before? And what he set forth, he said that could happen if Putin decided that they could not compete in the world market. And he brought out the fact, and a lot of people know this, that when the Soviet Union collapsed, they were, they were collapsing because of economic reasons. Gorbachev saw that they, they couldn't keep up. They couldn't, they couldn't feed their people. They couldn't, they couldn't make it economically. And it never showed up in any of the statistics. It was a hidden secret because they produced all kinds of statistics, but nobody believed them. And it's still that way today. You can't believe the statistics that they come out with. You can't believe what they say. And uh, so... In, in the time of Gorbachev, later on it became clear that the motivation behind all that is that they were on the verge of economic collapse and disintegrating it and giving up the, the Soviet Union and shifting to democracy and, and uh, open markets. That was like a last-ditch effort to save the Soviet Union. And so this writer said, you know, he says what... what would motivate Putin to try to go back to a closed system. And let me explain a little bit about a closed system. That means that everything is contained. The whole economy is all within that nation. And it was that way in the Soviet Union. Every refrigerator that they sold was produced, built, and consumed in the Soviet Union. Every car, all the products, they didn't have foreign trade. It was a closed economic system. They did not trade with the West. The West did not trade with them. And so, of course, it's hard to have a closed economic system where you don't have to trade with anybody in the world and to kind of maintain everything yourself. And the only reason they, got, they were able to do it for so many years, there are two reasons. One was the black market. The black market, they allowed to flourish because that was the only way certain products could get in. So that made, for, that made up for some of the shortfallings of a closed economic system. A second reason they could do it for so many years, is because of agriculture. In the Soviet Union, every family, even the city dwellers living in apartments, were all given a parcel of land. The city dwellers outside the city, but in, in many places just where they lived, they each had a little parcel of land. And there they would grow their, their gardens, their big gardens. And uh, that par those parcels of land, that represented... 3% of their entire, uh, of their tillable soil, about 3% of their tillable soil. And uh, eventually, those garden plots, that 3% eventually produced between 25 to 50% of their entire agricultural product. And so, they're, they're, it's impossible, really, uh, to have a, a closed economic system in our world today. But this writer went on to say that if Putin decided to try to go back to that system and to just give up, they can't, can't, can't compete with the West, it's never going to work, we're just going further and further in debt, uh, he would try to go back to that closed economic system. And if he did, he would, it'd be impossible to even try without Ukraine. That's what it would take for him to want to take Ukraine. 
Because in his mind, he sees that they can't compete just like Gorbachev did. they got to go back to a closed economic system so they can have something to rule. And uh, if that were to happen, here's what this author said. He said uh, there'd be a new Cold War. Then instead of a East and a West Germany and the Berlin Wall, there would be East and West Kiev. And that, that wall would be right in the middle of Kiev along the Dnieper River. And uh, when you look at what's happening today, that, that author might have been right on the money. You can see this unfolding. And uh, so there, there's that, that geopolitical factor. And uh, then there's a third reason we want to give you uh, today, and that's, that's the spiritual factor, uh, the unseen. Uh, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians uh, that we need to be aware. Let Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. In other words, we need to look beyond the physical warfare uh, that fills our TV screens and we read about on the Internet. And we need to look beyond those things that we can see to the spiritual warfare that is going on that is unseen. Ephesians 6 reminds us, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. The Bible tells us that the devil is as a roaring lion. He's going about seeking whom he may devour. And friends, when the Soviet Union collapsed, that was a wonderful time for freedom. It was a wonderful time of spiritual harvests. Sociologists told us that at that time, 83% of people in the Soviet Union were searching for a new belief system. I remember one that was interviewed, and he said this. He said, you know, all our lives, all our lives, we were told two things. One is that communism would prevail over capitalism. And secondly, that there is no God. He said, well, we can see now that they were wrong about what they said about capitalism being overtaken by communism. And if they're wrong about that, they're probably wrong about number two, that there is no God. And so people were seeking for a new belief system. And because of that, there was just a wonderful spiritual harvest. A lot of you probably remember how people would just flock to pick up a track or to get a Bible. I mean, people would be mobbed for that. And friends, it was so wonderful. Millions were saved. There was this tremendous harvest of souls being saved all over that area of the world, all over the Soviet Union. Millions were being saved, turning to Christ. They had seen communism fall, and they, they instinctively they were searching for something else to believe in, and they found it in Christ. Millions did. And out of that great, wonderful harvest, by far the greatest number of salvation decisions were in Ukraine. And now... Since Ukraine became independent till now, nothing can match the harvest that's been there in Ukraine. So many have been saved. Uh, our, our organization has planted probably about maybe 25 churches in Ukraine. Uh, and we also work together. Our partner in our education efforts there is the Brotherhood of Independent Baptist Churches. It's a group of 140 churches. And uh, uh, they all... Almost all of them are new churches that started uh, after Ukraine became independent. And uh, if you, we have a slide where we put all the locations of these 150 churches or so on a map of Ukraine. 
And it's beautiful to see. I love that slide. There's Ukraine. You've got all these crosses, all these churches all over. But keep in mind, I've been traveling back and forth from Ukraine for uh, these uh, 20-so years, uh, several times a year. And I almost never would land at the airport in Borispol and not meet some other missionaries, some other Christian organizations that were doing the same thing. I mean, missionaries, uh, church planners, mission organizations flooded Ukraine. And if you would take all the churches that they've established and add them to the 150 or so that I'm that I mentioned, and put them on a map with lights where they all over Ukraine. Ukraine would look like one big shining Christmas tree. So much shine, so much brightness for the glory of God. And you know, the devil saw that. And uh, he, he's the enemy of souls. He works day and night to send people to hell. And so, can we not know that the devil wanted to correct that situation from his perspective. And so the devil has been desperately stopping, trying to stop that. And so, friends, uh, you know, Putin is just a pawn. Uh, the world leaders, as they deal with all this, they're, they're not the main players. The one behind all the evil in the world, the one behind this war is the devil himself. He wants to keep that part of the world in darkness. It's, it's the word of God the devil hates. It's this blessed gospel that he wants to close down. And if he could bring that part of the world back under the old system, then he would have what he wanted. And friends, we don't want the devil to have a victory. We want Ukraine to remain free so people can keep getting saved. And uh, uh, that's, what, that's what we're about. We've distributed a lot of humanitarian aid. And yes, yes, we want to alleviate the, the human suffering there. We want, we, want, we want to save people's lives. We've, we've evacuated large numbers of Ukrainians and brought them out of a desperate danger. And we want to help them flee and get away to safety. But most of all, we want them saved. And there's been a harvest now. All of our church planners report about scores and scores and scores of people getting saved. And on one of the videos on our website, we have a pastor talking about how he went through the audience. He says, this church is renewed. It's a new church. He says, and he took this microphone through the audience one day and asked him, is there anything good you can say about the war? Because <laughs> there's so much negative things. Is there anything good you can say? And he said, person after person said, if it hadn't been for the war, I would have never heard the gospel. If it hadn't been for the war, I, I would have never been born again. And so it's, it's amazing that the devil is behind this so that the gospel would be stopped. But the reverse is happening. God is using this to win souls for him. And our mission has a long name. You know, we say B-I-E-M or just Baptist International. That's, that's usually what we say. But the whole name, uh, most people, they see B-I-E-M, most people, even friends and supporters, probably don't know the last two words. And so often Pete, we're introduced as Baptist International Evangelical. Now, uh, this morning... They got it right. It's evangelistic. We're not Baptist International Evangelical. We're Baptist International Evangelistic. That's our goal. We want to see people saved. And friends, uh, uh, that's, that's what we're doing now in light of all these new opportunities. Uh, friends, uh, uh, this is something that the situation today is something that, that you can do something about. 
when freedom came and you had this wonderful harvest, there was a time of so many people being saved. And then, and then the atmosphere cooled down spiritually. Uh, the effects of materialism and worldliness crept in. And the people all of a sudden weren't as open as they were when Ukraine first began, became free. But now, all of a sudden, <laughs> with the bombs dropping, with the jet fighters uh, attacking, with rockets blasting away residential neighborhoods, people are ready to hear from heaven. They're turning to God. They're getting saved. And every one of our churches and every Christian's home that has a basement has become not only a bomb shelter, but a revival meeting where people are praying, they're hearing the gospel, they're getting saved. And friends, this could be the most significant event of our lifetime not just uh, in the geopolitical or historical sense, but in the spiritual battle for the souls of men and women. Uh, today, 40 million Ukrainians are in peril. And, and as they're so ready to hear from heaven, this is the greatest opportunity we've ever had to reach them to craft for Christ, to proclaim the gospel, to deal the devil's lie a blow. This is the greatest chance we've ever had in our lifetimes to make a difference. Wouldn't it be wonderful if after our lives on earth are over and we're rejoicing in heaven with all the brethren and, and, and just, just praising God, that if at that time we could look over the bannerments of heaven and look down to this time, it wouldn't be great if we could say that when our generation faced its greatest need, when we faced our very greatest challenge, that when we were presented with the greatest need we could ever imagine, that when we had a chance to strike the devil's lie a blow, that we did not miss, that we took advantage of that opportunity, that we did what we could, that when we stepped up to the plate at life's most important moment, that was the time we mustered faith like we never have before. That was the time that we prayed the harvest, that that was the time that we shined the light of Jesus the brightest, that that was the time that we wrote our biggest checks. That was the time that we proclaimed God's word the loudest, that that was the time that our generation stood the tallest. Can we say with Paul that I am debtor both to the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise, so much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God under salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. When... Uh, Brother Eugene and his family came here to the United States. Uh, tomorrow they head back towards Ukraine after the chapel service. And uh, they've been here six weeks and took them all over in many states across America. And when they first arrived, all of a sudden Kiev had become peaceful. And then what's happened this last week or two? All of a sudden all these Iranian drones and other rockets and missiles are once again descending all over Ukraine and many of them are targeting Kiev. And so in these last several meetings we've had, the main question that people in these churches would ask Brother Eugene, are you going back? You've seen that in the news. Are you going to go back? And uh, his answer was, yes, we're needed there. And he and our other Church planners, as they distribute this aid, they tell us that people are so thankful. 
It's, it, you know, they've been without. And they're, they're, they thank him for the aid. They thank him for the medicine. But first, before they thank him for the medicine, before they thank him for the, for, for the food, the first thing they thank him for is, thank you for being here. Thank you that you're still here with us. And on one of our videos, you can see on our website, that question is posed to uh, uh, Vitaly Yurchenko. I think years ago we had him here on campus. He's the tall, very tall Ukrainian. And the question is, you know, because he's also in Kiev in the middle of this. And, and in, in some of the videos we have, you can see him take all the people out of his basement between bombings and go out in the street and sing hymns. And so the question was posed to him because so many were evacuating and leaving. They asked them, you know, why, why did you stay? And he said, uh, he said, that's hard to answer. I know, I know, I know I need to be here. I'm needed. But he said, maybe the main reason that I've stayed is because Jesus would have stayed. He was, and he remained, and he served where he was needed. And friends, we have some brave, brave Ukrainian national pastors and church planners that have decided to stay. And today, God is using them. Uh, tomorrow, when the Buikos sing, uh, we're going to show pictures of all 18 families that we have in Ukraine now. And uh, we want to encourage you to pray for them, and not just to pray for them generally, but to pray for them by name. And we have prayer cards on our table for, for most of them. And we invite you to take those prayer cards and, and pray for them uh, by name. Uh, today, we have this, uh, this opportunity, uh, a, an opportunity of a lifetime to make a difference, to do something that that we can look at back from over in heaven and rejoice and be glad that we responded when we had such a great opportunity. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love, for your wisdom, that you reached down from heaven and saved us. And Lord, we know that you are in control of everything. You know the beginning and the end. A lot of the things we see in the world today in Ukraine, we do not understand. But we can certainly see that many people are coming to you because of that. And because of that, we see a wonderful opportunity. Lord, help us do our part. Help us to give. Help us to pray. And Lord, we know that the prayers of God's people avail much. And we thank you, Lord, that none of our buildings have yet been destroyed, while 280 other church buildings have been destroyed. And we know, Lord, that that's because of the prayers of God's people. So we pray you'd encourage this student body to not forget about Ukraine, not forget about the church there, not to forget about those believers who are bravely serving, and to pray for them that they would be strong, that you would keep them safe, and most of all, that peace would come to that land. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.